Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Off the top, I would love to talk about our events. We just uh, released two new ones at Prairie Dunes and Lancaster in Pennsylvania. Uh, obviously, Prairie Dunes, renowned Perry and Press Maxwell golf course that we've talked a lot of, about a lot on this podcast. Lancaster is a wonderful golf course. Uh, William Flynn in, uh, I guess it would be Eastern Pennsylvania. Central Eastern Pennsylvania. I'm not sure exactly uh, where people would put the line of demarcation there that is the host of the 2015 u.s women's open as well as the 2024 so coming up you can get a little preview of what's to come for the women's open those are both october events uh october 4th and october 18th we also have a few others on the website if you go to the and click on events so we are back with our uh series the Yoke with Doak, and Tom and I have both been very busy, so we haven't talked in a little while. So enjoy this. We recorded a couple of these, so we will post the second one maybe in a, a week or two, and uh, enjoy this chat with Tom. As always, it's, it's a pleasure to talk with Tom about what's new and uh, what's going on. So without further ado, here is Tom Doak. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. made uh your first visit post-covid over to st patrick's your new golf course in ireland that opened uh just the other day recently here end of june right yes end yeah of june. i couldn't um i had a commitment in scotland the for that conflicted with the opening and you know with the covid rules right right then you couldn't if you went to the UK, then you'd have to quarantine when you came back through through Ireland. And so I couldn't figure out a way to do what I had to do in Scotland and make the opening of St. Patrick's. So I went like two weeks before the opening and was there for 10 days and then went to Scotland from there. Is this the longest that you've ever gone without seeing a golf course that was, you know, in construction to opening oh day. absolutely oh absolutely yeah it was you know i i was there we shaped and seeded the last green in october first of november of 2019 and then we still had a few fairways and and bunkers and tees and stuff to build but um you know and we were going to do those in the spring of 2020 and then you know, just as soon as Eric, you know, I was supposed to go over in April of 2020, Eric went over ahead of me and Eric and Angela and Clyde were all there, you know, get just getting started on, on doing the last, working on the last few holes when COVID happened. And, you know, one day it's like, oh, maybe we can, you know, maybe we can just wait it out here. And then the next day it's like, looks like we got to come back just to be able to get back to the States. Um, you know, and it seemed crazy to them because, like, you know, that part of Ireland was about as remote as you could be in March. You know, the odds that you were going to get, 
infected from somebody else while you're sitting out on a machine in the dunes in the northwest of Ireland seem pretty remote right then. You're much more likely to get it in the airport on the way home. Yeah. So, but you know, they just shut down completely where, you know, you know, if, if they'd have tried to stay any longer, like within a week after that, Ireland just said, no, everybody go sit in your house for the next month and a half and nobody do anything. So, so it, you know, it just became impossible for me to go over and, and do the work. And, you know, by the time we could ramp it up, you, you don't build stuff in the middle of the summer there because it's, you know, you don't have enough moisture to be sure you're going to be able to grow the grass. So, so you wait, we were waiting until August to finish it. And when August rolled around, I, you know, Eric and I talked about it a bunch and I was like, do you really need me to go back? You know, it's odd for me not to go back, but it seems like, you know, I've seen all the greens done. That's my main concern. You know, you and I have walked it like 20 times. So, you know, everything I'm thinking, I really feel like you could, finish it by yourself if you want to. And my wife would at that point much rather that Eric just finished it himself instead of her worrying about me traveling so much. So, so I let the, you know, I let the crew finish the golf course and this is the first I've seen it in a year and a half. Yeah. I, it's, uh, it's gotta be weird. What were, what were the, um, you know, how was it different than usual seeing the finished product when you went back missing out on kind of those final stage visits? Well, yeah. I mean, normally I know, you know, normally I know exactly what everything looks like and where it is. And, you know, there was enough, there were enough bunkers built and things changed around, you know, we're always changing stuff on the fly. And I did, you know, and I, and I, I didn't want them to not do that just because I wasn't there. You know, when you're, when you're working on something and you've got a better idea for, you know, this would be better if the bunker was over, if I flipped the bunker over on this hole. So, so they did quite a few things that were a little different than what we'd been thinking all the way along. But, you know, so, you know, I saw it more like a golfer sees it for the first mm -hmm. time than as the architect, which was a very unusual experience, but a pretty good one. Um, and it's so weird now because... You know, Alistair McKenzie didn't make seven trips during construction like we do now. You know, he never got back to Australia at all. He never got back to Crystal Downs at all to see how they turned out. Um, you know, I'm lucky that I get to do that, but I'm also like a little cursed that I have to do that, you know, instead of just letting the crew go ahead and finish the golf course. And, I, you know, sometimes I think to myself, is it really important for me to go do this, you know, for that last 1% of trying to be a perfectionist? Cause there's, you know, at the end of the day, there's, it's, it's not something you can perfect. You know, you keep working toward that, but it's all a matter of opinion anyway. So, um, so it, it was good. It was a really good exercise for me to let go of it at the point that I did and see how it turned out. And it turned out really well. So I might do a little more of that, especially if we're going to do projects far, far away from home. You know, it's getting harder to make the trips. You know, like it's, it's really hard now. You know, I'm getting calls from three or four different continents. And it would be, but it would be really hard to sign up a job right now because you, you know, how hard is it going to be to make those trips when the time comes? 
You know, is it going to be back to normal or am I still going to have to quarantine for 10 days every time I go? I don't know. With with regards to, from everything I've read, like Donald Ross was considered like, the greatest golf architect when he was living, like, cause he, he was prof- very professional, but he didn't, you know, he didn't go back places or, and sometimes didn't even visit places to do the courses. It, it's almost, it's interesting how like, you know, the different ideologies and, you know, societal things, but like now it's very like, you know, on hands-on craftsmanship, yes. you know, from cradle to, you know, finished product right and it's just interesting how like at the you know in the 20s when all those courses were being built like donald everybody it seemingly everybody was like oh you gotta hire donald ross he's the you know right the best or mckenzie or you know tilling has spent a little more time on construction sites than some of the other guys did but really we've romanticized that all of them spent a lot of time working on all these beautiful little details in that funky little contour at the edge of that green and somebody did you know somebody built that little thing deliberately but it wasn't them <laughs> they were they were off somewhere else by then <laughs> for sure um so what, what were some things that stood out about uh st patrick's finished product obviously americans can go over there uh, in the next couple of weeks i think the travel is opening up to ireland what what are uh some things that you know you were impressed with uh that you didn't maybe foresee in our previous conversations um well for one thing just you know i was talking to somebody today out here that you know we never build courses in the order that you play them you know you just the construction tends to start somewhere near where the water source is going to be for the irrigation because they got to start you know you're not going to you know, the first hole that you seed is going to be close to where the water source is, not all the way on the other side of the site. And so that's that's completely random. Sometimes that could be near the clubhouse. Sometimes it could be way over on the other side of the project. So, so when we route a golf course, we're thinking a lot about the sequence of holes and how things fit together and flow together. But once we start building it, you don't really think about that very much at all. You know, you get... You, you know, one day you're building, well, I'll I'll use the Lido as an example. So the Lido, you know, the first holes that we built were number four and five, and then like 12, 13, 14, and 15. And then we're, we're, you know, we're working out of that corner into the rest of the site. So you never, uh, you know, like the first hole is going to be one of the last holes we built and, and the eighth and ninth also. So, you know, I haven't, since we started, I haven't walked it in the order that you'll play at once. I haven't even thought about doing that because, because you know, the, the fourth and fifth holes now are pretty much done and the first hole, they're still moving dirt around and there's nothing, there's nothing worth walking yet. Um, and you know, Pacific Dunes was the same thing. I was saying, you know, we, we had all the holes near abandoned dunes built first, so we wouldn't blow sand on them, but then three, four, 12 13 14 15 they all came much later mm-hmm. so they're probably far from water source right right yeah we we tapped off the we tapped off the sixth hole abandoned dunes to start building pacific dunes and then we had to like you know connect from there back to where the pump station was which is over the side of number 
it's over the dune from AT and T. You know, we had to get that that loop done by the first summer, so we could keep watering those holes through the summer. Because we could, you know, we we could tap off abandoned dunes water in the winter when they weren't really irrigating much, but when the time came in the summer to start irrigating the whole golf course, we needed our own system. So we, you know, we were racing to get there in time. Um, but you know, so, so the day I, the day we finally sorted out the routing for Pacific dunes and like the first week of construction, I walked the golf course in order from one to 18 and then I didn't do it again until like the last day of construction. I was just like, Oh, I should really walk these holes in order now that they're all done and, you know, get a feeling for the flow of the golf course. But you, you know, you, you do lose track when you're in the middle of building it and you're working on the 14th hole, trying, you know, you're not really thinking so much about what 12 and 13 are like before you play this hole. And, you know, should I dial this up and make it harder because of those holes or not? You just, you're reacting to what's on the ground in front of you. Well, I think anybody can probably relate to that. Like if you're in a big project, you get so far into the weeds that like you, you lose sight of everything going on around you or the bigger part of it. You know, it's like anything. I bet you, you know, sometimes even when you're writing a book, you, the same thing happens. Yeah. And certainly like. You know, when you're making a movie, you shoot it all out of sequence, depending on where you are. But you don't you don't shoot the first scene the first day and, go and work to the end. So, you know, somebody but but the difference is on those, usually there's somebody behind the scenes thinking about how that all fits together. And on our projects, really, if there was anybody, it would be me. And I'm not thinking about it too much. So I doubt anybody else is either. So how does um, how's the flow of St. Pat, like, does the land really dictate the flow? Like, you know, one thing that people always talk about is like comparisons to, you know, different things to where like, you know, courses crescendo, you know, right. some of them crescendo in the middle, some of, some of them have it early on and yep. then it kind of, is that really dictated by flow? And maybe use St. Patrick's as an example, like, is that based off of the land and how, you know, where play, things are on the land or how, how does that work? Some yes, but no, there's a lot of conscious choices to be made when you're, when you're trying to put it together. So St. Patrick's has, you know, there's really kind of four distinct parts of the ground. There's, there's a few holes over on the, well, I don't even know what way north is really there. It's, it's, it's kind of skewed. It's not like it doesn't line up north, south, east, and west very well. But the, the inland most part on the, the inland part that's nearer to Rosapena and Old Tom Morris course, um, there's some big blowout dunes just off the property. There's a fence line. And the, the you know that where St. Patrick's historically ended, and the and the farmer next door, his land is protected under the under the EU rules, you know. So there's these beautiful blowouts, and it'd be like, God, it would have been nice to go over and use some a little, just a little of that ground. But even if we could have bought the land, they wouldn't have let us go there, you know. The, but the that that line was drawn around the 36 holes that were St. Patrick's because because there was already a golf course there. So they didn't make any restrictions on what could be done with it afterward. 
Um, so, so those halls are like, you know, some of the biggest looking dunes and blowouts you've seen kind of looks like the Sandhills in Nebraska, except, you know, and, you know, not so much a view of the water from those holes. And then the stuff that's close to the water before you get up on the big hill is um, like the old Tom Morris course. You're kind of down and there's like a 15 or 20 foot dune to the right of you that drops back down onto the beach. So when you're down in that valley, you're not really seeing, you're, you're only seeing the water when you're like up on a tee or up on a green. But when you're down in the fairway, you're too low in relation to the top of that dune to see, see the water. So even though you're closest to the coast, it's like the worst view. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get up onto the middle of the golf course is kind of on higher ground. And then there's this big hill when it was 36 holes, they had a bunch of holes just playing up and down the hill, which are spectacular views off to the side of the bay and stuff, but it was very repetitive. You know, they, they were trying to squeeze 36 holes into like 300 acres or 280 acres. And so they, they just wound up with a bunch of parallel fairways going back and forth. And, you know, the, the biggest decision in routing St. Patrick's was to say to the Casey's, you know, what are we trying to do here? Cause yeah, you could build 27 holes, but you know, you divide you would divide up the best holes into three different nines that you weren't using all at the same time, you know, if you're if you're trying to get if you're trying to get new people here, you just want to try to build the best 18 holes you can. And so we're using a really big piece of land by UK standards just for 18 holes. And that means like some of my other golf courses, you, you know, you feel like you're exploring the property more. And when you get over to the, the low part where the 14th fairway is going down around the backside of the hill, you know, it feels like you're in a totally different world than some of the holes that are on the start, the start of the golf course. They're only like three quarters of a mile away, but there's so much, there's so much terrain in between you and that that it's hard to connect the dots that you're even on the same piece of ground anymore. You almost got lost. Yeah, you really do. And, and then, so what, you know, so kind of what sequence do you want to get lost? Now I did find a place. I, I found a great clubhouse location kind of in the middle of the site that you could get the road to pretty easily. And it had a great view out to the bay. It was high, it sat high enough in the dunes, far enough back that you, you were looking over some golf and you had a great view out to the water. And, you know, with the clubhouse kind of in the middle like that, it made sense to make two loops of nine holes. If we could, you know, I didn't really grind on it. You know, if it, if it had worked out 10 and eight, that would have been fine. Nobody's going there just to play nine holes, but it did work out as two loops of nine. And then the most of the time that I was working on it, I had the two loops backwards from what we, what we wound up doing. I started on what I I thought I was going to start on what's 10 now. And when we got, when we were drawing the, when we were drawing the plan for it at the end, Don Plasek asked me, well, why do you, why do you make this the front nine and that the back nine? And I said, I said, well, I really like this, what's now the eighth hole, the short par four. I was like, really like that hole. I think that 
you know, I was saving that for 17. It's a great view. And he said, yeah, but if you go and plus, plus the, what's now the back nine going from 14 to 15 to 16, you're kind of working your way up the hill. Mm -hmm. And I figured it was better to do that early in the round instead of late in the round. And dad said, yeah, but you're kind of, you know, you're starting with 10, 11, 12, which are really cool holes, but like the most inland and least dramatic holes. And, and I thought, yeah, he's right. Cause you know, it's easier for that to be 10, 11, 12, you know, kind of lost in the middle after you've played some of these spectacular holes than to do those right at the start. So, so by swapping the nines, now we're playing along those big dunes for one, two, and then the third hole you play kind of through a little gap at a green site that's hidden down. You just get a peak of the water, but then walking from three green up to four T, all of a sudden you're looking at the whole bay and, you know, a mile of beachfront going down. And it's, you know, it's, it's the same kind of reveal as from three, from three fairway to three green to four T at Pacific dunes. It goes from like, I'm close to the ocean to holy cow, there's the ocean. I'm right on it all of a sudden. Where, uh, you, you know, obviously you, you, you've got your confidential guys and you've got your, your rating system where, you know, early, like, where does it kind of fall in your catalog of courses that you've built personally, you know, in terms of maybe if you put them into buckets or, you know, uh, in, in terms of sight and obviously, you know, the site dictates a lot of, you know, where, where a course falls, but you know, where would, where would you kind of. So you want to you want to know what my dope rating I mean, is for the golf to, course you don't right have to now. give me the dope I, rating. I, I, people you, have been asking me that for the last three months, <laughs> even before I saw it. They're okay. So where is I, it I, on I the dope scale? I gave you the out of you can put it in a bucket. You can bu right. bucket it if you want. It's a really good golf course. I mean, it's it's a beautiful piece of land. It uses that land really well. Um, you know, the couple of early reviews I've seen of it and got feedback from a couple of people I know are just like off the charts good. And I really don't know how to take that. You know, it's like, what, you know, when we finished Terra Edie, I honestly didn't think anybody would think it was my best golf course. And a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, and I still kind of think that some of that is about the place rather than the 18 holes. You know, I mean, I'd rather get the praise for the 18 holes than, than, oh, I just love it there. Because that doesn't really have much to do with what I did. It, some, but not, you know, that's not what golf course architects think they do. So, so I kind of, you know, I realized after that, that I'm not the one who can really say whether St. Patrick's is as good as Barnboogle or... Terra Edie or Pacific Dunes, somebody else, you know, other people decide that. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be in that conversation uh, for sure. And, and that's really all you can hope for is, you know, that people look at it. Now, it's different. You know, one of the reasons Terra Edie does so well is because the first comparison there is not to all my courses. The first comparison is to like New Zealand and Australia. 
and there's not too many Lynx courses in New Zealand and Australia, and it's a spectacular Lynx course, so boom, it's automatically really high. Whereas in Ireland, you know, I think St. Pat, you know, if, if St. Patrick's was, you know, if I took Barnboogle and moved it to the site of St. Patrick's, all of a sudden the question would be, well, is it better in Royal County Down? Is it better than Port yeah. Rush? Is it better than Bally Bunyan? You know, and, and Barnboogle being where it is doesn't have to answer that question right away. It, it, they, it has to answer, well, you know, besides Royal Melbourne, where else would you want to, where, where else would you rather play in Australia? Now it makes a ton of sense. And like the style, of course, if it's yeah. a different distinct style, like, you know, good examples like Ballyneal and Sandhills are such a distinct style of golf in America yeah. and so different than everything around them, right. but they really stand out. And right. It's like or this, pra- Prairie Dunes is the same. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, if it'd be the same thing as if, you know, you took like the best, you know, you know, I don't know. It's like I live in Naperville, right? If you take our best Mexican restaurant and then I go downtown where there's great Mexican restaurants everywhere, yeah. the our best Mexican restaurant is no, like I, I think about this all the time with food. It's the same thing. If you go to a place with a hot, like you bring a Lynx course to a Lynx, you know, neighborhood, all of a sudden you have a lot tougher comparisons to make. Yes. And I, you know, I've, I've dealt with that with the Renaissance Club sitting in between Muirfield and North Berwick. It's like <laughs> how you, that's a that's a tough battle to win. And so And there's something so too I, about old like you know, like a new course will never be at the top of the the America's rankings, right? Even if it's the best course in America. It it would take an awfully long time for it to be accepted that way. It's it's just like you know, it's the same I mean, Barnboogle, as highly rated as that is you know, is Barnboogle ever going to be rated higher in rural Melbourne? No, of course not. You know, rural Melbourne is the standard. Everything is judged against. And don't get me wrong. I think rural Melbourne is one of the best courses in the world. I don't think, Bar- I'm not saying Barnboogle should be rated higher, but, you know, facts are facts. It's like, you know, that's the heavyweight champion. And yeah, you know, you don't beat the heavyweight champion unless you knock him out. And how do you knock out Pine Valley or or Royal Melbourne or Cypress Point. You just, you don't. (laughs) So, so, you know, if, if I had to guess where St. Patrick's will wind up being rated as one of the best courses in the world, I think it's going to be a while before it has any chance of being rated higher than Bally Bunyan and Royal County Down and Port Rush, whether it's that good or not, it's just, that's that's the glass ceiling that it has to break through and it'll take a while before it really has any chance um do i think it'll be ranked as one of the top 100 courses in the world do i think it's an eight or nine in my book yeah i do but you know it's it's a tough neighborhood over there (laughs) yeah that's it's the same thing as like uh, you know building a golf course on long island like if you built one in southampton like a couple, a couple of doors. I, I have done yeah, that. Done that. Good point. <laughs> I've experienced that. <laughs> now for a quick word from our sponsor. I think we all saw at the Open Championship, great approach play is something that you want in your golf game. Colin Morikawa, I think, I mean, one of his greatest skills, he never misses numbers, seemingly. He hits the club, he hits all of his irons the right distance. It's a mark of a great iron player. We have something that can help you hit 
the right distance, hit the number, control your irons better more often. Rapsodo uh, is an affordable mobile launch monitor. It's great. It's affordable. It's portable. This thing's the size of your really rangefinder, so you can throw it in your bag. You have it every time you go practice, and uh, it works through your phone. So it's it's super easy to use. It's super accurate. It can be used both indoors and outdoors, so it can be used in the summer and the winter, and it's going to make you better at golf because you're going to get real feedback to your swings. So with the promo code FRIEDEGG, no spaces, you will get a free premium subscription, which is a $99 value, gives you cloud storage for up to 10,000 videos, uh, which gives you slow motion swing replays shot apex uh and it gives you access to their online coaching program so if you go to rapsodo.com that is r-a-p-s-o-d-o.com slash fried egg you can get your launch monitor there and start hitting iron shots probably not like kawa but maybe a little bit better incremental improvement that's a big thing all right now back to tom doke well, I was uh, I was gonna ask, uh, you know, on the topic of this, you know, is is the era of 1960 to 1990 somehow gonna be underrated in some form, semblance, or 2000? Because you know, we've got this new age golf, the new golf courses, yeah. and then the old golf courses, and in the middle, all those golf courses are almost in a way underrated some of the golf courses not all of them some of the golf courses could become underrated because they are you know from this era of design that's now a yeah little bit. they're they're completely overlooked now and kind of passe and you know and i can remember 40 years ago when i started in this business that's how people thought of the national golf links of america so so yeah there's the possibility that at some point in the future, those places will make a comeback, you know, maybe just cause they were built long and, you know, we need long golf courses now, you know, if equipment keeps running and running, it's like, well, you know, those, those courses still have enough length to challenge really good players. You know, maybe that'll become more important again, one of these days, but you know, I don't think there's as much detail work to latch on to to love in most of those golf courses you know they were built in an era where the you know there was only like three or four architects that anybody was paying attention to their work and they were all doing a ton of golf courses at the same time and they really didn't have a lot of time to put in a lot of finicky details <laughs> you know they 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 made their whole business around being able to churn out a lot of golf courses every year and hire a big construction company and not worry too much about, you know, just build the green like it is on the plan here and it'll be fine. So, you know, I don't know that those will ever come back and be beloved the same way some of the really old courses are beloved and some of the new stuff is. Mm -hmm. There's just not as many things to hang your hat on. Something, uh, something I've been thinking about a little bit is like, you know, we everybody rushes to judge courses right away, right? Yes. <laughs> before, they, before they open. Yeah. It's, it's annoying. <laughs> um, in a way, should golf courses almost be judged like 10 years and see how they age? Because 
and I think some of this goes with the ownership and who takes care of the course and, you know, uh, but like in a way, the best courses age well too, right? Yeah. I mean, the you know, the best courses... Just like a house. The best courses just keep getting better because, you know, everybody wants the thing to be perfectly mature and look like it was done forever the day it opens. But that's really hard to do. And... And really, you know, it's it's a couple of years in before this the greenkeeper has like even had a chance to worry about how the how the roughs play. You know, the first all through grow into opening day, you're just trying to get the greens and the fairways good, really good. And you don't really have time to worry about all the stuff on the margins that's important too, because people don't hit it in the fairway all the time. And so so it takes a while to get around, get back around to that stuff and get it dialed in too. And then, you know, like a lot of the famous courses that we talk about now, you know, Royal Melbourne, there's no way Royal Melbourne was as good when it was built in 1935 as it is now. I mean, what's there now is 80 years of evolution, you know, with two of the best superintendents who ever lived taking care of it for 20 or 30 years each, you know, working on all the little details around the edges. And, you know, Pine Valley was that way too. Pine Valley just spent forever, like, you know, doing researches of native plants that they could use out there and, and, you know, and working around the edges of the golf course. It was just, you know, complete mess when they started and, you know, it took them a long time to get it to where it is today. So new courses should have that going for them too. And the ones that have, you know, I was just at Pacific Dunes a couple of weeks ago and Ken Nice and Jeff Sutherland are still taking care of that golf course 20 years later. And, you know, it's better now because they've been taking care of it all that time and they've, they've really got it dialed in, but it, it takes a while. Look at but that. The, it's so nice to have that continuity of management, you know, like High Point in its first 20 years had like nine superintendents and seven head pros. And, you that's know, they, good, they, they no, a good sign a on of management. <laughs> <laughs> um, you just naturally transitioned us to our next topic here. Abandoned Dune, or Pacific Dudes turns 20. You got a new book out about yeah. it. I haven't read the book yet, so I'm I'm gonna ask questions like an idiot, but that's okay. usually what I do anyway. You know the, the the book is about the golf course. You yeah. know the golf course. <laughs> you kind of know what's in the book. So it, it, this book, it, it's a deep dive into the construction and all the stories from that, right? Yes, design, construction, and really. So, you know, 20 years ago, when right after we finished building the thing before it opened, um, my dad was got ill, you know, his cancer came back and he was in the hospital. And I was like, you know, I got news of it while I was out there for a press day and like the spring of 2000. So I was dealing with that for a few months and he, he passed away that late that summer. Um, but you know, going back and forth to the hospital and getting him moved up to Traverse city. And, you know, I just had like a lot of emotional stuff going on and, you know, spent a lot of time with him, but, you know, like trying to burn off energy in his spare time. Hadn't really had, um, we, we weren't that busy building stuff. We were, we were doing the planning work for the Rawls course. Um, and then, 
this the next course at Stonewall, but they weren't under construction yet. So I had time. And I thought, I'm just going to try to write down like everything I remember about building this golf course, you know, for posterity and maybe make a book out of it someday. So, you know, like where the ideas came from, because a lot of times people will ask me, like, when you were building that hole, were you thinking of this, you know, something that's similar in their eye to, to what I've done. And sometimes, yeah, they're right. And a lot of times, no, I was thinking about something else. I can see where you might think that, but I never really thought of that as a comparison until you just said it. So, but you, you kind of forget after mm -hmm. 10 years, you know, it's like, where did that idea come from? So, you know, so I wrote all that down, you know, and, I, you know, and, you know, I would still be able to take you out there and show you like the features that are built and the features that are natural, you know, but most people can't tell the difference. Uh, but, you know, I wrote all that down, like, you know, where did we do work and where did we not do work and all that stuff that looks cool as natural. What would be the most surprising thing for just a ra random person that's played the course that's all natural that wasn't built? The most surprising thing that's actually natural. All the all that mounding in front of the seventh green. Okay. And the yeah. bunkers around the seventh green, that's mostly natural. Uh, all the contour in the 16th fairway, all natural. Um, That's a wild fairway. Uh, what about the other way? Uh, the other way I think would be more surprising to people is some of the things that we built that you wouldn't have any idea. You know, and sometimes it's things that we took out. Like, like the 18th hole originally, the second shot when you're hitting kind of over the corner of the dune on the left where the big, the big sandy hollow is over on the left, that ridge was like 20 feet higher than it is now. You know, we just, we just blew, you know, we, we had to get through there to make a golf hole and we just blew that thing down and filled in the valley behind it. You know, like the, the fairway that goes around it is basically all fill. That was all a deep bowl that kind of connected across to number one. And then, and then this ridge that just came through and blocked everything. But when there's something big like that, that's in the middle of a golf hole, you can just take it away because you don't have to worry about how it ties into the edges. You know, it's just, it's just gone completely. And there's, there's no piece left for anybody to get a sense that there was something there. It's harder to do, do work like that at the edge of the hole. You know, if you've got a big dune kind of coming in from one side, wherever you cut it off, it's going to really be really hard to make yeah, that to, like, look finesse natural. finesse the whole thing. Right. You, you you almost need to go somewhere way behind that and work. And sometimes that's why things are built as wide as they are is because we had to go all the way back there to make this thing go away. And so if we, if we went back there at that point, then we kind of had to make the whole hole wider so that we could grass it in and make it look natural. Um, but so other places at Pacific Dunes that are, not natural like the green site for number four that that dune that's to the left of the green came almost all the way to the cliff edge okay so we jim dug all of that out from the dune and kind of flipped the dune over a little bit to to make space for a green in there mm -hmm. um that had to be kind of an unnerving job over there <laughs> <laughs> number number 11 green 
is, you know, that it, that sits into the other side of the same dune, basically. And, you know, that was a hole that Mr. Kaiser didn't really, he latched on to number 10 being a great hole right away. He didn't really latch on to number 11 being a great hole because the green site wasn't there. It was just like the face of that hill. And we, so we had to carve it down in where you see those little sharp dips at the back of the green. That's all created. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it kind of looks like the same scale of stuff as the natural stuff on number seven, but it's not natural. Mm -hmm. Uh, even the, like the six green where it falls off, where, where the deep bunker is left a six and then on back behind it, hard to believe, but that was even steeper. I mean, it was, it was literally just straight down off that thing when we started and we were like, well, this is way too steep. I don't even understand how you'd maintain it. So, so we brought in Phil from, there were, there was another dune ridge kind of in between six and 12 that we just took out and used some of it for Phil for that. But we used a bunch of it to like sand cap the fourth and the 12th holes. That was basically just blown down to sandstone. So there's three feet of sand fill on four, 12 and 13 that, you know, the contour is basically natural contour, but mimicked on top. 14 is completely manufactured 14 you know when when i when we found 13 and 13 is as natural a hole as there is there in fact the, the cover of the book is a picture of 13 with a guy in a red jacket standing in the fairway that's jim urbina and that was the the day we found the hole you know we we hiked up to it from the road down to the beach where you go up to the sheep ranch now because we couldn't get across the i mean the like the where four and 12 and three are now was just solid gorse and there was like one trail going through it and it was flooded in a couple places so it's like we couldn't we couldn't go to that end of the site to even look at what was over there and 13 was not on the map the property the property line for pacific dunes was supposed to end right were 12 green and four TR and not go over there. And I said to Mike, well, you know, we, we had lost some ground to David Kidd that was on my map. And I said to Mike, you know, I've, I've got a lot, but I, you know, I think I'm going to wind up having three holes that are pretty on pretty dull land out. I'm part of what would be old McDonald now say like the 10th hole and the sixth hole at old McDonald would have been land for Pacific Dunes. And it was like, that didn't seem very exciting compared to everything else that was out there. And Mike said, well, I do own the land to the north too. Why don't you go look at that? So we go around and we, we hike our way back in there and you know see the 13th hall for the first time from like up by where 14T is now. Mm -hmm. You know, I said to Jim, you stay here. I'm gonna go back to the T and try to get a sense of how, you know, it looked like the perfect distance for a hole but I didn't have a range finder or anything. So I just wanted to pace it off. So he stayed there and I paced off back to the T and I had my camera with me. So I took that picture. And so I put that picture on the front of the book. Cause that's the first time I saw it too. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's then, so we, we brought, book. we brought Mike Kaiser out to look at it that afternoon. And after we looked at that hole, he said, well, where would the next hole go? And I, 
I hadn't really thought about it yet. I just I was just like, well, I just found a great hole. I haven't thought more much past that. You know, I said the tee's got to go up here. You know, I figured it would be more like what 15 is now. You tee off the dune and play back into the rest of the land for Pacific Dunes. And Mike said, well, could you build like a par three up on top? So you, so you're looking at the ocean from it too. And I said, sure, we would do that. But you know, where the green site was for 14 was just a very, very, very sharp dune ridge that was quite a bit higher than what's there now. And, you know, we just had to melt that down. And, you know, if you go, if you miss the green to the right, you know, what's, you know what it's like it's just straight down but it was equally just straight down off the left so we you know we we melted all that down and pushed all you know through all the dirt off to the left to make it playable from over there mm -hmm. so you wouldn't be just going back and forth across the green from 25 feet below that's uh it's amazing um with the with the notes how long had it been since you looked at them before you started working on the book or like had it been, what, what, what happened? Tell me a little bit about these notes. You write these notes out. Where do they go? Okay. Yeah. Like I would have lost them, <laughs> but what, 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 what happened to them once they were written? Uh, so in like 2005 or six, somewhere around there, um, I started trying to finish up a version. So there was a bunch of text files and I printed up a few copies and sent them to some friends just like, you know, for feedback, like, what am I not telling you that you want to know about the golf course? You know, what if this is like too much information? Don't tell us that, you know, is there too much about the other people? Are there not enough stories about construction whatever? So, you know, two or three golf riders, Eamon Lynch from, who was with golf magazine back then, Ian Andrew fellow architect who writes really well, just trying to get their feedback on stuff. And they gave me some really good feedback. Um, but then I just like, you know, I kind of took that and had it in a box in my office and we were busy as hell. You know, that's when we were building Sabonic and Ballyneal and, and all these golf courses we're talking about now, I didn't have time to think about it much at all then. Uh, but Sarah Mass, who was working for me, you know, was kind of running my office and, you know, day to day, there wasn't much for her to do a lot of times. So she, she had that stuff and, and she's the one who kept like getting back on me to do something with it or, or could she help try to put it together into a book? And, and really she's, do, she's done most of the work since the initial version of it, just, you know, finding all the right pictures to put together with the text in the right places that, you know, that's the actual writing, the text of the book, you know, when you're done with that, you're maybe 50% done with doing a book, especially a book like this. You need all the, you need all of the stuff to go with it and to match up. And that's really painstaking. And, you know, if, if I'd have had to rely on myself for that, there would never have been a book. I would never have had enough time or patience to put it together. So, you know, so I didn't really start working on it again until about three years ago. You know, when we started working on getting to 18, we kind of started working on this too, because we, we had to use yeah. a portion of it for the part about Pacific Dunes that's in getting to 18. And then it's like, well, we've got all this other stuff too. 
we should really try to finish this and and make it all fit together into a nice neat package and right for the 20th anniversary yeah i just worked out the it was coming up on a milestone so it was a good time uh people can buy it on your website yes dokegolf.com mm-hmm. and uh, and you know you'll you'll start seeing we've got a few like affiliate partners for it so you'll start seeing more about the book in other in other places too but they're all going to direct you back to my site to buy it that's good yep. go, go to dokegolf.com though yes because then you gotta keep all the money true <laughs> <laughs> you know we, we want you to keep it all the money or you can buy it in the pro shop at band and they've got a bunch thank you for listening to another edition of the fried egg podcast this episode was edited by meg atkins just as a quick note Thank you guys for all the support. Uh, You can get your own fried egg gear. We've got a lot of stuff in the pro shop. Get some new gear. It's great because you can mix up the logos. You you know, if you're worried about wearing too much uh, golf course logos, you know what's a great logo to throw in there? Fried egg. People think it's from some breakfast place, but it's, you know, could be your favorite golf podcast or your second or third. You know, we don't think we have the best golf podcast, maybe, you know, but we're just humble Midwesterners here. So, you can visit our pro shop at thefriedag.com. It's up in the corner. Visit there and check out our pro shop. We got hats, t-shirts, polos, all sorts of stuff. Head covers, I think. But thanks a lot, and uh, thanks for listening. Thank you.